Welcome to Colorado Inside Out and In-Depth with Krista Kafer, where we range far and wide on topics central to Colorado. On today's podcast, what are clerks doing to prepare for Election Day? We'll ask Matt Crane, Executive Director of the Colorado County Clerks Association. And is it you or oh, about time? Colorado regulators have cleared the way for drinking treated wastewater. We'll talk with Colorado State University water expert, John Tracy, director of the Colorado Water Center, on why drinking recycled water isn't what you might think. Speaking of you, spiders and scorpions. We're gonna be talking with Dr. Paula Cushing, arachnologist with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. We're going to be talking now with Matt Crane. He's the executive director of the Colorado Clerks Association. He's also working with the federal government on election security. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's, I'm well. How are you? It's good I'm, to see you. I'm good. So we're here at your home office, and occasionally somebody will hear a, a little <laughs> scraping of, of doggy toes on the floor. Or children. Or children, <laughs> which is a good thing. Yes. Uh, but uh, now you, you've been a county clerk, mm-hmm. and you've been in this executive role for a while. I would love to get a kind of window into what's going on in clerks' offices, from the big ones in Denver and Jefferson County to you know the tiny towns out in the middle of nowhere where it's the county seat and there's a clerk office. What do you think is going on right now? So that's such a great question because there typically is a lot of focus on the large counties. That's where the major media markets are. And so you go and you go into a clerk's office and they have their entire election staff that just do this job. Uh, 24-7, 365. I mean, this is it for them. Um, and it, it's an exciting time. Ballots are on the street now. You know, this is what we work for all year. Um, and it really is an exciting time to help facilitate one of our greatest rights as Americans, the, the right to vote. For smaller counties, the challenge um, is much different and, and much harder, actually, because they don't have the staff that a Denver and Arapahoe does. Their staff have to be trained in motor vehicle elections and recording. They have to do everything, including the elected clerk and recorder who may issue one person a ballot and then have to run right to the desk next door um, to issue a license plate. So the challenges are completely different um, and much more complicated for small and medium-sized counties. Um, But for them as well, it's an exciting time. You know, this is what, as election administrators, this is the time we live for. I could see that. Yeah. So what you're saying is if, I, if I'm in Burlington, Colorado versus, mm-hmm. say, Denver, Colorado, I, I may have to be doing a heck of a lot more multitasking. Yes. Cler- I... Clerk Susan Corliss is her day today is a lot different than Clerk Paul Lopez in Denver County. So what now what your role with the, the County Clerks Association? Well, tell us a little bit about that. So the County Clerks Association is a group that um, the association has existed for over 50 years. And the idea is to provide training and education for uh, clerk and recorders across elections, motor vehicle recording, any of the other disciplines that that clerks are responsible for under the statute. Um, We also work as a legislative arm. So if there's when we when things come up and we the association can get to a place to where the majority or 60 percent agree on an issue, then we'll go down um, and and talk to legislators, try to um, find legislators to run our bills. We have a lobbyist who does a fantastic job. Um, 
to really push our our agenda. Um, and you know, I, we've been very successful doing that. As a matter of fact, Colorado, uh, the Clerks Association in Colorado, and it's been this way for a long period of time, is the envy of uh, election officials across the country because we do work so well in a nonpartisan fashion. You can have, like take for instance, when I was clerk and recorder, you know, I had a great relationship, uh, both a friendship, a great friendship still do, and a great working relationship with Hillary Hall in Boulder. And she is as liberal, if not more so, than I am conservative. And yet when we come together as an election administrators working for the association, we leave all that at the door, we come together and we focus on policies that move access and integrity um, forward um, in, a, in a cohesive fashion. And it's, it's been really effective for us. What kind of legislation do you think is necessary to improve both access and security? So access, we've done so much in Colorado already. Everybody's mailed a ballot 22 days before the election. We've expanded drop boxes and we have in-person voting. I think Colorado does a great job of um, with mail ballot delivery, but also if, you, if you're one of those people who really still like to go vote in person, you have ample opportunity to be able to go and do that. You know, we always want to keep looking at, you know, drop boxes are incredibly popular here in Colorado, despite the disinformation that is 2000 mules and the lies mm -hmm. uh, in that quote unquote documentary. Um, over 70% of those who cast their mail ballot take it to a mail ballot drop box. It is the safest, most secure way to get your ballot and the fastest way to get your ballot back to your county central count facility and have it processed and counted. Um, but so we can look for where we need more drop boxes. Um, you know, look, continuing to look around and see how our vote centers are serving the population. So, you know, there's always more that we can do in terms of access. For integrity, you know, this is one of my favorite questions. After 2020, when clerk and recorder stand up, these are use and say, you know, call out the lie that was, you know, this, the stolen election. You know, people, you know, people who like to push that narrative will say, well, clerk and recorders just say there's nothing to see here, move on. And that's not true. You should, as a Colorado voter, Crystal, you should have confidence that our elections are above board and that your ballot is tabulated properly and securely. That doesn't mean we can't get better in those areas. So last, in June of 2021, we issued a letter um, to the secretary and other stakeholders with four things that we wanted to push for for integrity. One was uh, creating a standardized signature verification audit across all 64 counties. We want to do a standardized voter registration audit across all counties and include the state in that. Um, we want to get make ballot images and cast vote records, which, you know, on both clear ballot and dominion machines, when your ballot goes through the tabulator, the tabulator creates an image, an individual image of your ballot, and those are available under Quora. So we want to make those in the cast vote record, which is the report from the voting system that interprets how an individual ba uh, ballot was read. So you can see if you if you know if you have a ballot, you know, here and then you can go to the cast vote record and say, mm -hmm. OK, the voter marks, you know, ABC and the cast vote record reflects that to demonstrate that it is tabulating correctly. So we want to make those available for free um, at no cost after each election. And then the other thing is we want more funding from uh, both from the state and federal government. We haven't adjusted our funding for elections um, here in Colorado in over 10 years. And so, you know, it's time we took a look at that and the money that we can take from that, a large part of that will go to um, the security and integrity of our elections. So there's there's a lot we want to do. Um, you know, perfection is unattainable, but we'll keep chasing it. So walk me through. I uh, two days ago, I mm -hmm. went to the Arap. I'm in Arapahoe County. I went to a drop box on federal, put it in there. 
Walk me through what's going to happen or what has happened with what I just dropped off. So first of all, there's a camera over that drop box that sees you dropping your ballot in. So there's security there. Then every day, counties send out a bipartisan team to each drop box in their jurisdiction. Well, they will go and they will get the ballots out of that box. They'll sweep the box, take it, put it in a secure container, seal it, and then bring it back to the central count facility where it's received there. There's tight chain of custody on it the whole night, the whole way. Um, and then the county now, we're inside 15 days, so they can actually start processing those ballots, meaning signature verification is done, verifying eligibility, opening those ballots, um, and then taking them through tabulation. So I can actually go online and see if it has been received, right? Yes, you can do that. And hopefully you sign up for Ballot Track as well, which is a great service uh, available to all Colorado voters where you can go and get updates about your ballot throughout its life cycle. So when it gets dropped at the GMF, when it's being mailed to you, you'll get a text, email, or a phone call, um, or all three if you really jones out on it. Hmm. Um, or, and more importantly, when you once you cast it, either at a Dropbox or in the mail, um, when it gets back to the central account facility for processing, you get a notification that that's happened. So you get peace of mind that your ballot is, has been accepted and is working its way through the process. So a human being will take the uh, ballot out of the envelope, mm -hmm. and then it's going to go into a, a machine. Mm -hmm. And it's going to, I assume it's something similar to like the, the Scantron test we had as kids, right? Because it's looking for that ink. Yes. And it's going to tabulate that up. What kind of safeguards are in place to make sure that tabulation is correct? There's extensive testing that goes on before and after each election to demonstrate that our voting systems are tabulated correctly. The first thing that I should start with um, is that these, despite disinformation to the contrary, these machines are not connected to the internet. Yes, they do have Wi-Fi components. The federal government tests and certifies these systems with that knowledge, full knowledge that those components are in there. In Colorado, it is against the law for those components to be turned on. So they're turned on during, a, or excuse me, turned off during a process called the trusted build. Counties have the ability to go in um, each election anytime they want to show that those components are still turned off. They can get to the access and acti uh, activity logs for both the operating system and the voting system to, to take a look and make sure that nothing nefarious has happened with the system like that. So there are checks and balances in place despite the disinformation to the contrary. Then we have our logic and accuracy tests. That happens before each election. And when I was in Arapahoe, we would send thousands, if not tens of thousands of ballots through before each election, um, testing every single candidate position and every single issue position. So yes, no, or voting for Matt Crane or Krista Kafer. Um, and so that is done thousands of times. And then we have a public logic and accuracy test where the parties get to send in a representative to be their, um, the member, their member of the test board that's open to the public. And again, there's a, that test is done where the test board gets to mark so many ballots, they do a hand count of those ballots, and then those ballots are run through the system, and then they look to see if they match. By the way, the only time that there's been an error in those tests is in the hand count, not the machine count. Um, and then post-election, Colorado has um, what's considered the national best practice for post-election tabulation audits, which is called the risk limiting audit, where depending on the margin of victory in a race, that will determine how many ballots have to be examined um, as a part of that audit. But we actually get the voter marked ballot. Here's my ballot. So, so you know, somebody will take this ballot and then they, they're, when it goes through tabulation, <clears throat> there's a unique number that's put on here. You can't trace that number to me because that's already been separated. But there'll be a unique number placed on that. And that number will also go onto the cast vote record for the ballot. 
So then they will get this ballot that let's say this is ballot 001, cast vote record for ballot 001, and then they will go down and call out, okay, this is what the voter marked. It's a comparison and it's done to the cast vote record. And then, you know, that's, so that's how the audit is done. So we go back to the uh, original uh, voter marked ballot. So since 2016, Colorado has done upwards of a thousand logic and accuracy tests and risk limiting audits across all 64 counties, right? These systems have never once failed a test or an audit. Now people say, oh, county clerks just say, trust the systems, trust the systems. No, we don't trust the systems. That's why we test and audit as much as we do to make sure that they're working properly. There was a concern that was voiced that some people have run for county clerk or are serving as, as election observers who are um, pushing that false narrative. Mm -hmm. Do you have any concerns about them on election day, not merely observing, but perhaps doing something else? Well, I mean, look, unfortunately here in Colorado, we probably have the preeminent example of an election insider threat with Tina Peters. Now that wasn't in the context of an election, um, but, you know, it was still, you know, disgraceful and shameful what she did. You know, she bought the stolen narrative lie, the Dominion lie. Um, and so, you know, worked with bad actors to get to take an image of her system. Meanwhile, she had everything she needed to be able to demonstrate whether or not her voting system counted ballots accurately. She didn't have to do any of that illegal, well, allegedly illegal stuff that she did. Um, so, you know, is it a concern? Um, you know, I feel really good about the cadre of clerks that we have now. Um, you know, we, we're going to have some turnover now for, for term limits. Um, so, you know, one of the things we do as an association after gubernatorial election years, when that's when the clerks are on the ballot, is that we have a new clerks training where we bring all the new clerks in and we really go through what is the job, how does it work, how do our systems work, all of this type of thing. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, you know, if we want people, if they, if people who get elected, if they have questions, concerns, we can't wait to engage with them, to talk to them, to show them how things really work, um, how things really go. Um, you know, I think that, you know, once they come in and see the truth, um, then I think that, uh, you know, I think the light bulb will go off and they'll see that they've been misled by bad actors. If somebody wanted to just sort of see the, the back works of, mm -hmm. um, of a county clerk's office, do they have that opportunity as a, as a voter? So some counties um, will offer tours of their election facilities. So if that's the case, I highly encourage you to do it. Most counties that do those tours will do it at a time when ballots are being processed. So you can see how all that goes, which is a fantastic opportunity to, to come in and see. You can also sign up to be a watcher for whatever political party you're in, which you can go and say, hey, I want to watch at the central count facility. And then, you know, you can go in and take a look um, and actually observe for your political party to make sure that everything is happening according to statute and rule. So there are different opportunities, you know, when it's non-election time for those counties that don't offer tours. Um, clerks still love to have people come in and talk. So, um, you know, we're very proud of our processes. We want people to learn the truth um, from us as opposed to the lies from grifters. So people, we are very open and transparent. So, you know, there's, I know there's opportunities in every county for people to learn more. 
Give us your website so if folks want to dive a little deeper, they can go there. What is it? Clerkandrecorder.org. And we have links to all the clerks, uh, to each clerk website on there. We have FAQs about what really happens in our elections. Um, I think my contact number is there. So if anybody has questions, whatever, um, I can certainly help or get them directed to their county clerk and recorder who can answer any further questions. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking some time today. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. So is it ew or hey, it's about time? I'm talking about the Colorado Quality Control Commission's decision to give a green light to direct potable use. That means what goes through the toilet eventually comes back through the sink. Hmm, good idea or bad idea? We're talking with John Tracy, director of the Colorado Water Center at Colorado State University. John, you or you? Um, with implementation of new technology, I tend not to put value judgments on it. I think of it as sort of a tool. And, and if you think about a screwdriver, is that an ooh or a huh? And the answer is, is that in its place for helping um, address water supply issues and, and wastewater and water quality issues, it definitely has its place. And I think it just sort of has to be implemented in a way that, that works both with what the circumstances of the water supply needs are for the citizens and also work with the environment to ensure that we're not creating a situation where maybe we're sort of uh, creating a waste stream somewhere else that we're not aware of. Because even direct potable reuse, we like to think of it as like, oh, we're reusing all the water that comes through the system. But in the treatment processes of how we're treating the wastewater, there are products that come out of that that are highly concentrated waste. And we need to sort of think about how are we managing those? Are those being managed in an environmentally friendly way or not? So I think it's a good tool, shouldn't be used everywhere, but for even at the household level or the community level, it can be something that really stabilizes and increases the security of both water supplies and also in managing wastewater streams. What I think people don't realize is that water ultimately is recycled and has been recycled for a few billion years. But here in the state of Colorado, up until now, when water is treated at a, at a sewage plant, it, you know, the waste is taken out, perhaps becomes compost and other things, but that, river, that water then goes into the river only to be picked up again and put back into the system. This kind of eliminates the middle part, doesn't it? This definitely eliminates the middle part. And if I understand Colorado water law, the, uh, the, there were recent legislative changes that actually allowed for that. That is, once you use the water for your purposes and then it entered back into the river or recharge the groundwater, it was basically the state of Colorado's water again to allocate in the water rights system. So it's kind of interesting that uh, uh, the, the, the water law sort of subtly changed so that communities were allowed to use the water, capture it all, treat it and reuse it again, rather than it being reused by uh, the next user down the stream. So Interesting. So when I visited this sewage plant, uh, when they put that water into the stream, the, the person I spoke to said that technically this water is drinkable. We have to put it in the stream at a certain level of purity. Yes. It had been under a, a, a type of light that had killed or disabled the bacteria. It had been through numerous filters. Um, so, so we're already kind of doing this, but why is it that people tend to react so strongly when there is no longer that middleman? Um. That's an interesting question because over the history of water supplies, and this goes back to Europe and, you know, in any developed society, um, 
back in the day, and we're talking Middle Ages, cities would pull water out of the stream and people would use it and then their waste would go back in the stream. And hopefully there was enough distance down the stream that natural processes, you know, sort of, uh, how should I say, made the water a bit cleaner for the next city to use it. So this, this is sort of the way water's worked all along. And, and it is interesting now, and I think it just comes down to this idea that people were comfortable sort of thinking, well, it's been in the natural environment long enough, and then we're gonna do some treatment of the water when we use it, that it's all fine now, as opposed to just having it all in a closed loop system. Um, it's interesting that nobody seemed to say ooh when we we're talking about how astronauts were getting their water supply and on for example the uh, the nuclear navy the submarines you know they could be under underwater for months at a time and their water supply is interesting a lot of it is recycled but all of also some of it is from desal from the ocean water so that you know in terms of our you know very specialized applications this has been used quite a bit. And the astronauts, it's interesting, you never hear them really talk about that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame them. Yeah, so, but it, it, it's something that if, if implemented correctly and under the right uh, sampling, making sure that everything is fine and under the right regulatory environment, it is completely safe. The question really is, is, is it a strategy that fits into all communities' water supplies, or is it a strategy that only fits into some in unique circumstances? Where would it not work? Well, I think the it, technical, it, it's the difference between, how should I say, how society wants it to work and how technically it could work. Technically, it could work anywhere. But if you look at a place with an ample water supply, and let's say you're more of a mountain headwater stream in Colorado, um, and you have a lot of water, very good quality coming off the snowmelt that you have a right to take, um, you probably would never do it there, just simply because it's just going to be a lot more expensive to build the, you know, build the infrastructure to do this. You're going to need a very educated workforce to run the system as opposed to something where you're just taking water out of a stream, putting it through a sand filter, and then getting into homes. So where it probably doesn't make sense for it to work is areas that really don't have the type of water stress that uh, communities, as we go into the more arid areas of Colorado, were facing. That's where it would make more sense. Looking at our water strategies, particularly in this dry year, we're not just talking about municipal water and making sure that people have safe, clean drinking water. We're looking at a lot of different aspects of water, particularly as we come up upon the 100th year of the Colorado River Compact. What is that compact and why does it matter? Well, the Colorado River Compact was entered into and it's the 100th anniversary, so 100 years ago, and it was preceded by negotiations from the seven states that are considered um, either, well, actually, that rely on the Colorado River for water supply. And so this is Wyoming, this is Colorado, this is Utah, this is New Mexico, it's Arizona, California, Nevada. Um, the way the compact was constructed is rather interesting, and for those of you, and I'm going to give a shameless plug to the CSU libraries, for those of you that are really interested in learning about a tremendous amount of the details of the compact and how it was created, uh, Colorado State University has an archives with a water resource archivist with many of the original documents and drafts of the Colorado River Compact, and uh, they're more than happy to have people come and visit and look at kind of this history. So with that, um, it was a compact that eventually settled upon trying to divide the water between what are considered the upstream states and the downstream states. 
New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming are considered the upstream states, which is where the vast majority of the, water, the flow in the Colorado originates from, and Arizona, Nevada, and California are the downstream states, where uh, because of the climate uh, and, and some of the infrastructure that was built um, when the compact was created were the states that had a better climate for using the water for predominantly agricultural purposes. In particular, um, California in the Coachella and Imperial Valleys, and in Arizona, um, it took a, a bit longer to fully develop the infrastructure to deliver the water to agricultural areas. But when that finally was developed, it was it's called the Central Arizona Project, and moves water to both agricultural and municipal areas in Arizona. So the idea was is that well, let's just do a 50-50 split. <laughs> And uh, then there's another part of the compact that it's, it's not in the compact, but it has to be recognized that there's a treaty on the Colorado River between the U.S. and Mexico. Mm -hmm. So there's a delivery requirement that is embedded within the compact that talks about delivering a million and a half acre feet to Mexico as part of our treaty obligations with uh, Mexico on the Colorado River. And then the remainder was is about seven and a half million acre feet was allocated for the lower Colorado states and seven and a half million could be used by the upper Colorado states. So if you add all those numbers together, that's 16 and a half million acre feet. And when the compact was put together, there were some rather optimistic estimates of how much water the Colorado River would have in it every year. And over the history of the Colorado River, it's pretty much been shown there isn't that much water in the Colorado River. Now, Another part of the compact, which the compact was signed and divvied up the water, but because how the Colorado River flows and is driven by snowmelt, it's not like there's this consistent amount of flow always entering into the Colorado. There's parts during the snowmelt season, it's a lot of water, and then you get late in the summer, not so much water. And then you'd have dry years, and then you'd have wet years. So the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation uh, was authorized to build, uh, well, several reservoirs, but the two big ones are Lake Powell and Lake Mead, where the combined storage of, of those reservoirs, I'm trying to remember, it's, uh, boy, the active storage, for some reason I'm blanking on the total, but is multiple times the annual average flow in the Colorado River. So the idea behind those reservoirs is that you would capture, you know, lots of water in the reservoirs when we had more than anybody could use and save it for future years. As part of those reservoirs, both have large hydropower facilities that are kind of a backbone to the western power grid. And so it's, it's, we talk a lot about the Colorado River Compact, which is all about allocating the uh, water from the Colorado River to the upper and lower states. But one of the byproducts of that is the construction of these reservoirs, which created very large hydropower infrastructure that is critical to the energy systems in much of the Intermountain West. So that kind of complicates the situation when we start talking about the compact and who gets much, you know, what water, because you get to a situation where, so would everybody get their water if it meant that you stop producing this hydropower that's critical? That, that becomes an interesting part of the discussion that I don't think has been entirely resolved by all the parties yet. So with a population increase in the West and uh, also a, a long-term drought and, and global warming and other issues, uh, we're, is there a possibility that we need to make some, some changes to that compact? 
That's been an interesting discussion because it seems like, especially with the discussion that happened last year, where the U.S. federal government through the Bureau of Reclamation told the states, because of the, the extreme low flows that have occurred in the last three years in the Colorado River, that they needed to get into a room together and come up with what amounted to a response plan for dealing with these lower flows because the, the there's the expectation that the lower states get seven and a half million acre feet, the upper states get seven and a half. Um, then the reality is, is that if you look at the flows that would have, you know, in essence gone past this, this one point of the river just downstream of Lake Powell, there would be the seven and a half million. The natural flows, they wouldn't have been at seven and a half million acre feet for, for a long, long time, and especially the last three years. The reason we're allowed to provide the flows is because the storage in the reservoir that has hit the critical stage where we're to the point where there is no more available storage to provide those flows. So Reclamation said, get together and tell us what you're going to do. And the states pretty much got together and talked and came out and said, we're not going to do anything. And then the, then the Bureau <laughs> of Reclamation imposed some reductions that were uh, predominantly absorbed by the state of Arizona and the uh, uh, Nevada, and it was predominantly in the Las Vegas area, where uh, I believe the flows that Las Vegas could have taken were reduced by about 10%, and Arizona's percentage-wise was much larger than that. Um, it's an interesting situation because if it is not a very good snowpack winter in the headwaters of the Colorado, they're going to be back to this um, inability to move water through the reservoirs and provide the 7.5 million acre foot downstream much earlier in the year next year and it'll be curious to see what happens at that point. Um, I, I think there's anticipation that reclamation which has the contract to deliver with the water to the lower states will have to impose some reductions in the deliveries. It's possible the states come together and talk about something. There was movement by California recently that actually suggested they might take a little less water, um, not nearly enough to resolve the situation, but it was about the first time they said, okay, we might take a little less. <laughs> so we'll kind of see where the negotiations go from there. Uh, but you know, th there is this reality of opening up the compact, which from all the discussions I've been in, Nobody seems to want to enter into that because that is something that would probably be multi-year, possibly multi-decadal process. It would take a long time for the states to come to agreement on. So there's that where people are like, nope, the compact's reality. We don't want to mess with it. But then there's the reality of the flows in the Colorado River don't allow for meeting anything in the compact if things don't change in the hydrologic situation pretty quickly. So it'll be kind of interesting to see which will end up winning there, physical reality or legal reality. And I'm curious to see the outcomes. It's kind of like a cliffhanger in a movie, and we'll see what happens next year. Well, with uh, Mead and Powell down to about, what, a, uh, a, quarter, a quarter of yeah. uh, of their maximum flow, at some point, uh, if the electricity is going to stay on in cities like Vegas, they actually have to make some changes. Yes, and that's what's interesting because um, the, the, the both reservoirs are about 25% of their capacity. However, what's important to understand is that they're still above their hydropower generation. And that is where reclamation is, is basically drawing a line. It's, it's only a little below that hydropower protection water level in the lakes 
that becomes what's called dead storage. In essence, you can't actually move the water out of the reservoirs at that point. It's, it's below where the outflows are. So it's water that's there, but you can't really move it the way you can when the elevations are higher and you have all these outflow mechanisms there. Um, so I, I think that this is just my, how should I say, my postulating, <laughs> is that I, I think that the it, one of the major decision factors for reclamation will be to keep the water levels in the reservoirs high enough for hydropower generation, um, because that ends up being critical for the, the Intermountain West, I mean, for the grid in that particular area, and in Las Vegas uh, in particular, because they use a lot of energy from the hydropower production in, uh, out of Lake Mead, Hoover Dam. Drought is a reality. Yes. Lower water is a reality. These are, are hazards, not kind of random nuisances that pop up year to year. And it requires and will require conservation at many levels and changes to the way that we do things in order to protect that precious resource. Obviously, uh, these issues are complex, but fortunately, there's a symposium coming up in the recent, in the near future, uh, that we'll start to address some of these. T tell us a little bit about that. So the Water in the West Symposium is something that has been uh, held by the CSU system for a number of years now. Um, it's interesting, we're almost to the point of being able to hold it on the new CSU Spur campus, but we're still holding it off, you know, in a location in downtown Denver. Um, and, but there will be an opportunity to come over to the Spur campus for, I believe, uh, the reception that'll occur on the, e I forgot which evening the reception is on, but th there will be that opportunity for people to come over and visit the Spur campus, which is quite a facility. Uh, the conference itself is, the symposium itself is going to focus on issues of, uh, water scarcity in the West but we're bringing in much wider perspectives than just speakers from the West. So we're going to have uh, panel discussions, for example, looking at river treaties and how, how these river treaties evolved and how effective they are in dealing with managing water and rivers that cross national boundaries. Um, that's going to be interesting because the Colorado River is obviously a treaty between the U.S. and Mexico, but so is the Rio Grande, and then in our northern neighbor, there's the Columbia River Treaty, and it's kind of fascinating because all of these treaties are very different in terms of how they allocate water, how they reimburse upstream versus downstream water users for the water use, and the arrangements that were made between the nations to basically manage these large complex river systems binationally. So that's just one of the panels there. And then we're going to have one of our keynote speakers who's uh, high up with USAID uh, that's going to be talking, uh, hopefully, about the uh, U.S. government's international strategy for water development. And then kind of everything in between, we will definitely have some panels that are more directly focused on Colorado water issues, where we're trying to sort of focus on what can we learn about water management to help us manage water in the Intermountain Arid West, especially under uh, climate change and use information from our local perspectives but integrate it in with both national and international perspectives on being able to help us understand what are some strategies we can use coming forward. So the symposium is really about creating a dialogue and trying to connect these, uh, these issues to, to, to really sort of think about how are we going to address this going into the future. 
So I doubt we'll come to any definitive answers, but I think it is going to be a very interesting conversation that hopefully gets us on the path to some of these answers. Give us the dates and a way that people can uh, connect with uh, with registration. Okay, the, the dates are November the afternoon of November 2nd and the morning of November 3rd. Uh, the easiest way is to just type in Google water in the west and it will take you right to the web page and then they will have information on registration options the entire agenda who all the speakers are uh, that type of thing and that's probably the easiest way to do it now for folks that can't attend that but are deeply interested in water and after all who isn't interested water is life how can they access the colorado water center's resources and learn more about these issues um so the colorado water center we uh, i mean again uh, the easiest way is probably the web page, although we do have lots of social media feeds. Um, if you look at most of our social media feeds, they will talk about something and then you'll get redirected to the web page for the more detailed information. And so uh, that's something you can just type in again. I, this is the way I find anything. I Google it. Amen. I, I know that's a trademark, but it's like, okay. Uh, so type in the Colorado Water Center and the link in one of the, the first thing that'll show up and you'll click right in and you'll see uh, a variety of resources there, everything from uh, some of our educational uh, activities right now, for example, we, we have uh, a, a graduate water resources symposium that's being taught by Jennifer Gimbel this year, and it's entirely focused on the Colorado River. Uh, there is a video recording of a symposium that Jennifer just put on that was looking at Colorado issues associated with the Colorado River and the compact uh, that was held at uh, Fort Collins a couple weeks ago, but the entire thing is on video and you can download it right off of the web page. Um, there are uh, a variety of other courses and materials. Uh, and then there are projects and project descriptions you can see along with newsletters and, and everything in terms of events. So you can go there and just kind of cruise around the web pages and see what you want to see. But if it's specifically looking at uh, Colorado River issues, uh, Jennifer Gimbel's Symposium and the uh, graduate uh, course is uh, probably the best way, place to look. Uh, the graduate seminar will continue going on and there is a virtual attendance option. And so for those of you that are interested, you can just see that, register, you have to register. Um, it doesn't cost anything, but you have to register. And then you can get a link to, to see the, um, uh, the, the virtual presentations for all of the, the speakers that are uh, discussing issues in the Colorado River. Well, we've been talking with John Tracy, the director of the Colorado Water Center at Colorado State University. It has been a pleasure, and I look forward to future conversations about this most precious resource, water. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to find out what's creeping and crawling around Colorado with Dr. Paula Cushing. She is the curator of invertebrate zoology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Her specialty is spiders. So why are people so afraid of spiders? And frankly, should we be afraid, Dr. So, Paula? Yes, yeah, so Krista, thanks so much for inviting me to be part of your podcast. This is exciting. Uh, I have no idea why people are so afraid of spiders. They shouldn't be. There was a paper that came out a couple of years ago by some colleagues that estimated that the worldwide population of spiders, and I should say spiders are found in every terrestrial habitat on Earth except Antarctica. And these, these scientists estimated that the worldwide population of spiders was eating 400 to 800 million tons 
of prey, insect prey, every year. And in that same paper, they estimated that the worldwide population of humans is only eating about 200 million tons of protein. So spiders are eating twice the amount of protein as humans are in the form of insects. So they're incredibly important in controlling insect populations. They're found worldwide. There are over 50,000 described species. And of those, only a teeny tiny fraction have venom of medical importance to humans. So they're really nothing to worry about. They are the kind of creatures we should all welcome around our homes. In our homes, you should see my house. It's filled with cobwebs and I just leave them be. So they're the good guys, not the bad guys. I, I've adopted a leave it be uh, yeah. uh, way of handling spiders. I I imagine that they when I'm not when I'm not at home that they're singing doo wop. Have you ever caught a spider in the act of singing? Uh, not in the act of singing, but I have caught one just as it's lifting the top hat off of its cephalothorax. Yeah, that's yeah, fantastic. You know, yeah, it throws the, the the cane away. But and this person's a scientist. I'm not making this <laughs> stuff up. Uh, so people really shouldn't be afraid of spiders. Now, I understand that Colorado is home to at least one species of tarantula and three species of scorpions. I have never seen any of these. Um, where, where are they? So the tarantulas range in the southern part of the state and the southeastern part of the state. In fact, this was the first year, the, hopefully the first annual tarantula fest that was held in La Junta. And I, was, I helped with that. And it was uh, held in last week, no, two weekends ago, on October 7th and 8th. And it was to celebrate the tarantulas that they have there this time of year. So late in the summer, early in the fall, the male tarantulas leave their burrows and go looking for love. They're looking for true love. They're looking for females who stay in their burrows. So those are that's the area of the state. The southeastern part of the state is where we see the most tarantulas. But there are tarantula-like spiders and species that we also have on the western slope and the southwestern part of the state. Scorpions, we will see them also in the same area, southeastern part of the state. There's uh, one species, Centroides uh, vitatis. Centroides vitatis is a harmless species. It'll, it'll hurt and kind of feel like a sting if it stings you, like a bee sting, but it won't do any damage. And then we have a much larger species. The one in the southeast is pretty small. The one in the western slope is a pretty good chunky looking specimen that's a good three and a half or so inches. Bright yellow, real pretty. It's um, huge. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge and much larger than the southeastern species. Is, and I'm not it, sure what the third species is. Is it aggressive? No, none of the scorpions are aggressive, but even, even I will uh, only pick them up with forceps. I'm really kind of a wimp that way. Some of my, my uh, colleagues who study scorpions, they'll, they'll pick them up with their hands, but even they will pick them up by the, what we call the telson, which is the stinging part. Uh, and if you pick them up by the tail, then they really can't, they can't sting you. And that's, that's what you worry about. They might try to pinch you with their, with their kela, with their pinchers, um, but they won't sting you if you grab them by the tail. Now, we do have black widow spiders. That would be one of the percentage, small percentage mm -hmm. of spiders that actually have venom that can hurt a human being. Uh, my, my understanding is that they're not terribly aggressive. Tell us about black widows. Yeah, so black widows, are they're, they are pretty timid. They're very common around Colorado. They're really well adapted to our dry xeric habitat. They can do really well without without open sources of water. We have one species, the Western Black Widow, Latrodectus hesperus. And yeah, if you encounter one, first of all, you probably won't encounter it during the day because they're hiding. 
uh, in cracks or crevices. All you see is their messy, very, very strong web. They build a cobweb. If you pull your finger through the silk, it, it all, you can almost hear the silk line snap. That's how strong the silk is. Uh, but they're not aggressive. You almost have to go out of your way to get bitten by a black widow. So bites would occur, for example, if someone's doing work under your house and they back up against the surface where a spider is resting, or if you're picking up a log or a rock and the spider's resting underneath and you don't know it, you might trap the spider against that surface. You know, if a giant were trapping us, we would probably bite as well. So that's when bites might occur. But even when bites do occur with black widows, oftentimes it's a, what we would call a dry bite. It's, it's not venomous um, they, because they're just trying to get away. And so they may uh, just give you a little nip, but not waste metabolically expensive venom on something they know they can't eat. They can't eat us, so why bother? They're just trying to escape. And in fact, I was once um, sort of bitten by a black widow. I was doing a Halloween event here at the museum and I was handling a black widow, which I like to do to show people that they're not gonna go for your jugular. Mm -hmm. So if you just let them crawl on your hand, they just perceive you as a hot, somewhat sweaty surface, but they don't perceive you as a threat. And I'd been handling this black widow all evening and when I, put my hand back in the jar to let her go back home. Uh, she gave me a little nip on the on the tip of my finger, which uh, I called her a bad name. <laughs> in front of kids. That was my adults, it was my colleagues. But I, I was so surprised that I could feel the little nip. And and I, I said with my colleagues standing around, huh, I, I think she just bit me. And of course they all started freaking out and said, should we call a, you know, the ambulance? And I said, well, swing back by in about a half an hour <laughs> and if she if she actually envenomated me then i'll let you know but it was a little bit tender for a couple of days and that was it okay but in, in bad cases when when black widows do envenomate the symptoms are pretty pretty classic so typical symptomology is uh they it messes up your pre and postsynaptic nerve impulses and it creates a, a sudden charge of norepinephrine and, and epinephrine or acetylcholine anyway of your, your nerve um, signaling chemicals. And so it causes pain throughout the body. It causes a feeling of your stomach muscles hardening. It feels like somebody's been kicking you in the gut over and over. Uh, facial contortions, sweating, hypertension, pain in the lymph nodes, pain in the joints. Untreated for a healthy adult, the symptoms will dissipate after about 48 hours. Uh, but oftentimes physicians will, if you know you've been bitten by a black widow and you know it's that, like if you, if you have even the dead remnant of the spider, you should definitely take it with you to the hospital. Uh, a physician might, might treat you for the pain symptoms, give you morphine or give you some kind of pain, pain drugs rather than antivenin. Antivenin is available, but the antivenin is, is more than you want to know, but it's derived from horse serum. And there's a protein in horse serum that less than 1% of the human population is allergic to. So oftentimes a physician, if presented with a healthy adult, um, may decide that the, the, even that slight risk of anaphylactic shock um, outweighs the painful symptoms, knowing that the pain is going to dissipate. And so they'll just treat you for the painful symptoms, knowing that you'll get over it. That's fascinating. Now, I had a friend whose spider bite became necrotic. She thinks it's possible that she was bitten by a black recluse. Or a brown recluse. Sorry, yeah. brown recluse. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
They're not supposed to be here, though, are they? No, so this this is not part of the natural range of any species of that genus. It's a genus called Loxosceles. It's in a, a family called Sicariidae, um, and they don't range into the western states at all. And there are a lot of a lot of other medical conditions that can cause those dermatocrotic injuries, including flesh-eating bac- bacteria infection, MRSA, and that's probably the most commonly misdiagnosed. Misdiagnosed as a spider bite when it's actually a bacterial infection is the is an infection with MRSA, and MRSA stands for methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus infection. But diabetic ulcers are look necrotic, look like necrotic wounds, and that they've been misdiagnosed as spider bites. Uh, lymphoma sometimes can result in necrotic injuries. Now those three things. Uh, can be effectively treated, but not if they're misdiagnosed as spider bites. So it's important for people to know that in regions of the country where recluse spiders do not naturally occur, it's too dry, it's too cold in the winter, it's too dry here, uh, wrong, wrong climatic conditions. So in areas of the country like the Western states, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, where these spiders do not range, the least likely causative agent for German necrotic injuries is spiders. Do these spiders get blamed for a lot of bites? They're really other stuff. Absolutely they do. <laughs> yes, they really do. Uh, people will wake up in the morning and they've probably gotten oh, mosquito bites or bed bugs or gnats or some kind of other biting biting fly and they blame it immediately on spiders. And and I can tell you that, that none of my arachnological colleagues have woken up in the morning with spider bites. So it's just who were with it's something spiders. else. Yeah, it's, it's something else that's causing, causing bites. And it's probably biting, biting flies, biting insects. We're, we're talking with Dr. Paula Cushing here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, a, a, an arachnologist and specialist in, in invertebrates more broadly. Your specialty, though, is sun spiders. periodically these come up on social media they look genuinely horrific i have a feeling though the photos have been doctored tell us a little (laughs) bit about sun spiders sure so sun spiders is one of the misnomer common names for a group of arachnids an order of arachnids called the solifugi they're also called camel spiders they're called sun scorpions they're not scorpions they're not spiders they're a different group of arachnids Uh, they have giant huge jaws that are incredibly powerful and they're kind of pugnacious. They don't have venom, they can't do you any harm, but but unlike most spiders, sulfugids or these, these camel spiders in quotes, uh, do look like they're going for your jugular. They, <laughs> they, they have no problem like opening their jaws and rushing at you and trying to bite you, and, but they can't really do you any harm except a little nip on the skin. That's about it. Uh, they're, they're important predators in xeric habitats, xeric being very dry habitats. So they're one of the major arthropod predators in deserts or semi-deserts like, like we live in here, a high desert environment. We'll find camel spiders here. And I get, oftentimes I get phone calls from people saying, my husband just got back from, name it, Iran, Iraq, serving in the Middle East. And I think he brought back camels, <laughs> and they, he didn't bring them back. They didn't bring them back in their in their military gear. They they live. We have species that live here. What's the biggest one? The biggest one are some species in a family called Galeotidae that live in the Middle East, and they probably body length is probably two and a half three inches. But when they run through the desert, they hold these front appendages called pedipalps aloft. And when they hold those pedipalps aloft and they're running, 
they look like they're good, whatever that is, you know, five, six inches. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it is fantastic. <laughs> Somebody gave me a picture of a spider. I recognized it right away, a huntsman spider, because yeah. it was huge, yeah. like a dinner plate with long legs. Don't worry, obviously, to listeners that these don't live in Colorado. But my understanding is they were not terribly aggressive spiders. No, no, and they're, and they're found in areas of the world where huntsmen are found. Uh, people love having them in their homes because they're really great predators of, of roaches. And so it's kind of a great thing if you have huntsman spiders living on your walls, especially on your walls in your kitchen, because it keeps the roach population down. Sign me up. That sounds yeah, fantastic. No kidding. No kidding. So I tend to think of spiders in two different groups, hunters and trappers, because you've got the spiders that are on the foot, like the wolf spiders and the jumping spiders, kind of like little wolf little wolves or little lions out mm -hmm. there hunting. And then your web spiders that are in these beautiful webs are sort of waiting for prey to come to them. Um, am I missing a third category? Well, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good, simple way, an easy way to think about spiders is you've got ones, they all make silk. So every single spider out there has silk glands. They're using the silk in a different way. So you've got the, the web builders that are, that one of the way, one of the many ways they use silk is to build these prey capture devices. Could be like a Charlotte's web, the orb web. It could be a funnel web, like the family Agilinity. It could be a little triangle shaped web, all sorts of different shapes and sizes to these prey capture devices. Uh, but then you have these other spiders like tarantulas, wolf spiders, jumping spiders, crab spiders. They still use silk, but they don't use it for prey capture. So there, some of them are sitting weight predators, just sitting on flower heads, mm -hmm. waiting for pollinators like the crab spiders. Or like you mentioned, they're the, the wolf spiders that are running down their prey, kind of like a, a wolf pack without the pack, just a lone wolf the lone out there. Wolf. Yeah, the, the lone wolf. wolf spider. The lone wolf spider. And do they howl? Hmm? Do oh, they howl? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Maybe so. Now, as I look around your lab, I see a number of uh, jars with preserved, primarily these uh, sun spiders, mm -hmm. sulfugents. Yeah, sulfugents. Sulfugents. Um, what's going on in this lab? How are you contributing to the broader knowledge of spiders here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science? Sure. So what I'm an evolutionary biologist, and I'm interested in biodiversity of life on Earth. And we have one planet that has God, goodness knows how many species. I mean, we have, have yet to document all the different species that live live on this one planet that we share. And so one of my passions is to help document species diversity of life on, on, on the earth. And one of the largest groups are the arthropods, any of the, the animals that have exoskeletons and jointed legs, and that includes the arachnids. Um, I became an arachnologist because it's just a really welcoming field. It welcomes it welcomes uh, non-PhD scientists, it welcomes students, it really supports the next generation of researchers. And it's a small field in terms of, not in terms of number of animals, because we've got well over 100,000 different species, well over 100,000 different species of arachnids, but there's only about 600 professional arachnologists in the world to study these. And so for me, it's a really satisfying field because they're just about any question you come up with that you, you see a behavior especially these camel spiders, that they that you see them do something and you think, well, that's weird. Why, why are they doing that? Uh, almost certainly no one else has tried to figure that out. So it, the, the field is wide open in terms of the kind of research that we can do. 
So in my lab, I'm supporting the next generation. I've got three graduate students, a whole bunch of volunteers, a whole bunch of uh, other people who come through the lab. And what we're doing is we're doing both phylogenetic research and taxonomic research. So phylogenetic research has, has to do with using data these days, a lot of it is DNA data to understand how different species are related to each other, understand how different genera, different families, different orders. So these are different taxonomic categories. And we use DNA oftentimes and morphology, anatomical characteristics, to understand how species are related to one another. So we're doing a lot of that research in this lab. We have, we have uh, microscopes like this one that's covered up that have cameras. And so we can really take really um, very well magnified photo documentation and analyses of the morphological features. Uh, we're also just identifying the species that behind these doors in the collection are our collection. So I, when I started here in 1998, we did not have an arachnology collection. I've grown it from zero vials to over 50,000 vials in 20, almost 25 years. So we're also documenting the Earth's biodiversity of this component of the planet species in this lab. Uh, we're publishing all that data online, so we're contributing in that way as well by allowing the world to see what species we have that are available for research. If I'm, uh, say on Halloween, I'm somewhere in the dark corners of my house or out in my garden and there's some spiders, what should I do? Should I kill them? Should I let them be? You should, you should sugarcoat a fly and give it to them <laughs> as a Halloween treat. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Paula Cushing, for having me in your fantastic lab. And uh, you know what? Uh, we'll have to talk spiders again soon. That sounds great. That sounds great. Thanks. Thanks so much. What do voting Halloween and water have in common? Well, they've all been our subjects today on Colorado Inside Out and In Depth with me, your host, Krista Kafer. Be sure to tune in tonight to PBS Channel 12 to see Kyle Dyer and our fantastic panel of guests to talk about things of importance to Colorado. Until next week, have a great Colorado day.